You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 1st of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. If the Prime Minister goes in that direction with his version of One Nation Toryism, then he's going to be very much like a President Trump that we see in the US. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and US President Donald Trump both claim to have their nation's best interests at heart. But do they really? My guests, Terry Stiasny and Jeffrey Howard, will discuss that and the day's other news, including... The People's Republic celebrates its founding with a display of military might. But what role does the military parade play in democracies? And he wore a raspberry beret. But not anymore. Uganda's opposition leader Bobby Wine has his trademark hat censored. Plus... While it's true that events such as Art Monte Carlo and Art Genève have found their footing with collectors because of their manageable size, the established players have not thrown in the towel. We take a look at how one of the world's foremost art fairs is keeping it fresh. I'm Tom Edwards. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm delighted to say I'm joined today by political journalist Terry Stiasny and Jeffrey Howard, an expert in US politics, both regulars here on Monocle 24. Welcome to the programme. We start with two divisive leaders, the UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson and US President Donald Trump, the former committed to a Brexit at any cost. A self-declared one-nation Tory, Johnson maintains that the UK's growing divides can only be healed when Brexit is completed. Trump, meanwhile, continues to espouse the rhetoric of America first, even as evidence of his venality becomes ever harder to ignore. Uh, Terry Stiasny, if I can start with you... Do we believe that either of these men truly hold the interests of their countries closer than their own? I think, yeah, obviously, you know, you don't generally get to be prime minister without having a certain level of, uh, you know, self-interest and obvious ambition. Uh, I think one of the things that's interesting about Boris Johnson, um, and it's been brought up this morning when he did a series of interviews, is how much he has changed his sort of public persona from the time that he was mayor of London, when he was seen as, you know, this mayor of quite a diverse city, appealing more to the centre ground, and now that he's become prime minister, he is appealing, you know, much more to the right and to the Brexit wing of his own party. You know, he's actually effectively sacked at least 20 of his own MPs. Um, and one of the interesting things that's happened sort of in the course of that, which I suppose is where there's a possible parallel with Trump. But, you know, today at the Conservative Party conference, they're listening to people talking about the importance of law and order, speech by the Justice Secretary talking about longer sentences for offenders, that is traditionally one of the heartbeats of the Conservative Party. They, they generally love a law and order pitch. At the same time, the Prime Minister is saying, well, look, there's a law here, the Ben Act, that he likes to call the Surrender Act, and the rest of us generally shouldn't, uh, saying that, oh, I'm going to find ways around this law. I'm going to find ways around a Supreme Court judgment that was 11 judges to nil, uh, about the legality of proroguing Parliament. Now, the, he's trying to do these two things at the same time. Um, and that is certainly, for a Conservative Prime Minister, very unusual. And it's interesting, of course, that's been very striking, this sense that, you know, great the great Conservative political movement is built on the rule of law, except when it's a law I don't like. And I guess, without crudely uh, jumping across the Atlantic, Jeffrey, you know, that does echo both Trumpian rhetoric and, if there is such a thing, his ideology, which is 
to espouse law and order and to espouse, you know, America first until it doesn't suit Donald Trump anymore. I think the question of ideology here is an important one. Certainly, when we look at the case of the president of the United States, it's very hard to discern what the ideology is. There doesn't seem to be any anchoring set of moral principles other than suspicion toward trade and suspicion toward immigrants that characterize his career. The case of Boris Johnson in ideology is a slightly more interesting one. I would have suspected that many people during his time of mayor of London would have said that he had a broadly liberal ideology, one that was welcoming toward migrants, one that was supportive of minority communities. And so when he says that he's now in favor of a a kind of one-nation conservatism. I think we need to press him on what exactly he means by that. You could imagine a certain kind of one-nation conservatism probably the kind that, that Damian Green and members of the, of the One Nation Caucus uh, in Parliament favor, which is a kind of moderate, pragmatic, centrist, conservative movement that is opposed to extreme austerity, that wants to invest in the working communities of Britain, um, and that does have a broadly liberal agenda in the sense of being opening and welcoming. But there's also a kind of darker um, right-wing populist, I think, version of um, one nation Toryism, whether we'd still want to call it that is another question, according to which we want to invest in, the, uh, invest in the working people of this country. But by working people of this country, wink, wink, we have a very particular group of people mm-hmm. in mind, um, and we are hostile to people who don't fall into that group. And if the prime minister goes in that direction with his version of one nation Toryism, um, uh, then he's going to be very much like uh, a President Trump that we see in the U.S. And Terry, that's interesting, isn't it? You, you know, Jeffrey's talking there about, uh, and, you, and you mentioned yourself, Boris, when he was the mayor, he was uh, progressive. I guess London was a great multicultural uh, city. And he's shifted to this very clear nationalistic uh, position. And let's not forget, Trump's made the same sort of meanders. He was a Democrat nominally at one point. Um, how How worried should we be, not only by their... Uh, political maneuverings, which are expedient for their own career advancement, but by the fact that whether you're in America or or here in the UK, the base of these two gentlemen, respectively, seem to be buying still. Uh, I think it's interesting to think about to what extent this is actually working. I mean, the Conservatives at the moment are ahead in the polls, but not enough... uh, but not by enough, certainly. Mm. Uh, so we would see, you know, they've been calling for an election. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. And, you know, supposedly the strategy for the Conservatives is to, to a certain extent, ditch uh, voters in London, in Scotland, in parts of the southeast and the southwest, and to say we're going to go after the more leave voters, say, in the north of England. I think it's uh, certainly a very big question as to whether that will work for them electorally. And I think over the last week we have also seen a real backlash against the kind of language that Boris Johnson's been using, most notably in Parliament when there were women MPs standing up and saying, look, one of our colleagues was murdered three years ago because of people using that kind of language. And although you know, Boris Johnson caused outrage by initially calling that humbug, I think certainly in the interviews he's been doing over the last few days, he has seemed... Uh, a bit less confident about that. Mm. Uh, I heard him, for instance, this morning saying the so-called Surrender Act. You know, that was a phrase he invented. He can't go so-called. You know, it was him that called it that. So he has been trying to moderate his language a bit because that did cause such outrage and particularly among women. 
He's moderated it in some moments. In other moments, though, he seems to be doubling down. So when he was mm. um, talking to the BBC the other morning, he said that it's entirely appropriate to use martial metaphors that would be impoverishing our political discourse if we didn't um, use this kind of militaristic rhetoric. Um, and I think that's just completely morally irresponsible. And I think especially, and I think MPs were right to point out, the role of dangerous speech and in, in indirectly inciting the murder of the of, of the MP Joe Cox. Um, it's completely morally irresponsible not to think about how certain unhinged, susceptible listeners in one's audience might react to one's speech. So I think um, he absolutely hasn't um, lived up to his responsibility to manage the public temperature of his discourse. And I think he is certainly playing towards different audiences. Okay, mm. so to mm. uh, a BBC audience this morning, he was he was just trying to split hairs about whether collaboration was the same thing as a collaborator and whether there was a different sense to that. And, and when he's addressing a different audience, I mean, when he's speaking to the conference, for instance, it will be interesting to see what he thinks will play better. Uh, and are we getting any hint, uh, j- just briefly, and I'll get you, you both to chip in, in terms of Trump, on, on what may ultimately, uh, if not unseat him, cause him serious problems, Jeffrey. Obviously, we've got these claims now about Australia and the Mueller inquiry. The impeachment it, it sort of uh, process sort of rumbles on. Are we Are we getting any closer to find what may be Trump's undoing? I mean, a lot of people are trying to spin the impeachment inquiry as a political bonus for the president. They're trying to say that, oh, the impeachment is actually going to be really good for him. It's going to mobilize Republicans around him. He doesn't seem to be behaving like somebody who thinks that this is a win for him, that this is clearly a good thing. The frenetic weekend-long tweeting has continued unabated. He's attacking new show hosts hosts who are disagreeing with him, even new show hosts appearing on Fox News. Um, He's calling for investigations of treason into um, members of Congress uh, engaging in fully constitutionally protected criticism of what he's he's been doing. Um, So I think he seems very, very rattled. And I think the president often reacts most harshly when he is cornered. Now, presently, his um, harsh reaction takes the form of picking up the phone and tweeting out frenzied um, messages to his followers, talking about the fake news media, um, talking about treasonous Democrats. But I think we also have to remember that he has a huge policy arsenal at his disposal. He can use public policy. He can use the powers of the presidency as a way of distracting us from what's going on. Um, He can ramp up child separations on the border. He can slash refugee admissions. He can do things that are quite morally troubling in order to distract us from what's going on. And I suspect um, it's not out of... um, consideration that he will do so. I think he probably will. Uh, And Terry, just briefly, Boris Johnson, of course, doesn't really have those tools at his disposal. He can't get anything through uh, Parliament. He didn't even expect Parliament to be sitting, which it's going to be. What can he do? One imagines a lot of this rhetoric at the conference will play well in the hall, but it will maybe largely fall on on deaf ears uh, across the country where Brexit is sucking all the oxygen out of the room. In the meantime, there are ongoing claims and counterclaims about impropriety, his behaviour. Um, and there's this interesting case about when he was mayor of London, did he favour a woman with whom he may or may not have had a relationship uh, with the awards of public money, which is definitely one to watch. Could that be the thing that undoes Johnson even more than the insoluble Brexit crisis? I think... The interesting thing, obviously, we don't know exactly the details of what happened. These kinds of inquiries, whether it's an impeachment inquiry in the US or inquiry into you know what happened in the mayoralty in the UK, they take a lot of time and a lot of detail. The trouble for Boris Johnson at the moment is he has, as of today, precisely one month to solve Brexit. 
uh, and you know that's going to be the immediate thing. He has to either try to get a deal or get an election or try to find some as yet unspecified way out of it, and that's going to be the immediate crisis. Terry Stiasny and Geoffrey Howard with me here in Studio One. Thank you. We'll be back in just a moment with more from today's panellists. But first, here's Monocle's Marco Sippi with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Tom. Australian officials have confirmed that Donald Trump asked Scott Morrison for help with an investigation into the origins of the Mueller inquiry. The Australian Prime Minister was asked to find evidence that could discredit the findings. Morrison reportedly agreed to help the US president. A teenage protester in Hong Kong has been shot in the chest by a police officer. The wounding came during a day of protests as Hong Kong activists took to the streets to demonstrate on the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic. Elsewhere in Beijing, the date was marked with displays of military hardware, with Chinese Premier Xi Jinping declaring that no force can shake China's status. And under new EU regulations, certain household appliances are said to become easier to fix. The new right-to-repair legislation aims to combat the designed obsolescence that sees goods irreparably collapse just after the end of their warranty. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Tom. Thanks, Marcus. You're with Monocle's House View. I'm Tom Edwards here in Studio One alongside Geoffrey Howard and Terry Stiasny. Today, China marks 70 years of the foundation of the People's Republic. Aside from civilian pageantry, it's also an opportunity to flex some military muscle tanks, guns, the full works on display. Autocratic regimes aren't the only fans of military parades. However, US President Trump has also noted his admiration for public domestic displays of military might. By the way, on July 4th in Washington, D.C., come on down, we're going to have a big day. Bring your flags. Jeffrey Howard, what role do military parades have in nominally functioning democracies? I mean, you look at um, military parades in, say, France, and they seem to be relatively innocuous. I'm sure some people might disagree with that. Um, And it was indeed when President Trump was overlooking Bastille Day festivities that he remarked um, to Macron how amazing this was and how cool it would be if we could do it in the U.S. And so Pentagon officials are under orders to to look into this. It sounds like Pentagon officials are trying to put the brakes on this a bit. They're not entirely comfortable with it. There has been a tradition of some low-level military parades in the U.S., occasionally large-scale parades. They had a big parade at the end of the the first Gulf War in Washington, D.C. But generally, it's not something that America is particularly enthusiastic about, having um, uh, tanks marching through the streets, having fighter jets go overhead, um, except on special occasions like the, the 4th of July. And even then, the tanks going through the streets thing, we're we're pretty allergic to. I think it's probably difficult to identify any kind of moral bright line principle here. Um, But if the general question is, should we on a whole be morally skeptical toward the use of these parades or in favor of them, I'm going to vote for for skeptical. I think that sounds very sage. Um, Terry, should we expect to see uh, Boris Johnson, I don't know, calling on the red arrows or, or seeing, so, I don't know, whatever they are, Polaris missiles being rolled down Whitehall well, anytime soon? Let's not forget, I mean, we do have, we have military parades all the time. I mean, we, you know, you go down to Westminster and you see the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace and that's a nice thing. There's for no warheads so there, though. Yeah, you have, that's that's the... what I'm coming on to say, you have the trooping of the colour where the Queen, you know, goes every year. Yeah, we do not, you know, as China has been doing, parade, you know, huge intercontinental <laughs> ballistic missiles down, uh, down Whitehall. Um, which you know is is certainly a good thing, not only for you know for safety reasons apart from anything else. Um, I think one of the interesting things 
you know, obviously what China is doing in the same way that North Korea does, in the same way that we used to with the, with the Soviet Union, is to say, look, this is what we have, this is what we can do. I mean, back in the days of the Soviet Union and the Kremlinology, I mean, we used to judge, you know, who was in favour, who was out, by who was standing where on a balcony watching the parade go by. And in fairly closed societies, you could, you know, try to infer quite a lot from the way these things were done. But yeah, as you say, you know, the French have Bastille Day every every year. I was in France for this year's parade, not in Paris, but there were a few sort of boos and protests from Gilets Jaunes along the side. But generally, it's you know, a nice, peaceful thing that that passes off quietly and, and you have international dig- dignitaries there and, and no harm done. Uh, one thing that strikes me as interesting from what you said, uh, Terry, there is this idea that it's what we have and it's what we could use. And I wonder, actually, Jeffrey, is there a point, if you look at, for example, Jeremy Corbyn in this country, nominal, well, he's still the leader of the opposition, um, but an avowed pacifist, is this one of the things that causes the public here in the UK to be slightly sceptical, to use that word again, about Corbyn, that this is someone who they don't trust could sort of look after the nation if the day if the day came for all of our aversion to aggressive militaristic posturing is being avowedly pacifistic equally damaging politically potentially i think politically i think it probably could be damaging i think people want a sense that we don't use that term here, but that the prime minister can act as a kind of commander in chief looking after the troops. Um, on the other hand, I think British public's opposition to the Iraq war shows that there is um, a quite measured, responsible attitude toward war in this country where people are very, very skeptical about spilling blood and treasure for something that isn't uh, a moral imperative that's in the national interest, which clearly the Iraq war was not. And so I think um, this is yet another argument to be skeptical about the kind of warmongering that seems to be entangled with certain kinds of military parades in some countries, that it does serve as a, as a kind of public ritual to whip up enthusiasm for foreign aggression. And so I think if um, Mr. Corbyn is bringing to our politics a, a healthy dose of skepticism toward that kind of warmongering, I think that's probably for the best. Uh, and just brief terror on this, I suppose, uh, and again, a cynic might say, well, look, whatever you think about it, the, the potential use of force still underpins largely the geopolitical stability of most nations. So actually, shouldn't we have these sorts of displays or a more direct acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, they are the expressions of that sort of fundamental truth about where some of our stability comes from? Yes, and I think it's really interesting that when Jeremy Corbyn has been asked in the past, because he's often voted against the use of military force in all sorts of, even in humanitarian intervention situations, and, you know, he's been very, very hard pushed to actually answer an example of where he would support the use of force, even in self-defence. I think what people often try to do is draw that distinction, say, between advocating the use of force and supporting the armed forces. So, like, Jeremy Corbyn obviously does go to the Cenotaph to commemorate, you know, Armistice Day in November and lays his wreath and pays respects to serving members of the armed forces, even if he would himself be reluctant to commit them to, you know, to wars. Um, Well, let's uh, wrap up today by heading to Uganda, perhaps unexpectedly, but an interesting story. Leading opposition politician and pop star Bobby Wine is surfing a wave of people's power. Uh, Public sentiment against the longtime incumbent president, Yari Museveni. Bobby's instantly recognisable for his red beret, a symbol of opposition. It's now been banned by the government, which claims the beret is property of the state and it prohibits any non-military personnel from sporting such headwear. Uh, Bobby Wines denounced government censorship as a blatant attempt to suffocate a threat to the autocratic status quo. Very lyrical, as one might expect. Um, 
Jeffrey, it's interesting. We're talking about all this sort of political and militaristic posturing. Um, this is a pure and simple act of, of censorship. And although there may be almost something slightly entertaining about it. It's not really funny. No, it's not funny. There was a, a famous Supreme Court case where, a U.S. Supreme Court case where children were wearing black armbands to school in protest of the Vietnam War. Um, and one of the arguments on the other side when the school told them to take the armbands off was that, oh, a tire does not constitute speech, and so it isn't protected by the moral right to freedom of speech. Um, and of course, the court held that no, that's not true. Clothing is part of how we express ourselves. It's part of expression. It's an important um, part of our package of civil liberties. And clearly, this is just a, a naked act of suppression by the state. It almost certainly, I think, will backfire. Um, it'll almost certainly be counterproductive. It will probably increase the number of berets that are worn, um, even if those people wind up uh, being arrested. Um, so I think it's a it's a pretty outrageous act of desperation uh, on the part of the, the government, who seems politically terrified. And uh, I guess that's the point. It, this tends to imbue said object, whether it's umbrellas in Hong Kong or anywhere else we might look, with extraordinary power far beyond almost the in, in, initial gesture. I, one of the questions I ask is, why, why do governments in these sorts of examples not learn the lessons of history? Which is, no. this is probably not, it's probably going to have the opposite effect of what you're trying to... No, I to. think we've got quite a few examples lately of, you know, the ordinary object that takes on huge power. For instance, you say the Hong Kong, the umbrella protest. I mean, the police force have labelled umbrellas as weapons when they're mostly a symbol <laughs> either, you know, of self-defence, literally against facial recognition or against tear gas. Um, and even, I mean, the gilet jaune in France, now, that's an interesting example because far from being banned, the reason people have these high-vis vests is because the government years ago passed a law saying everyone has to carry one in their car. So when it came to what's a handy symbol of protest, it's like it could have been the warning triangle, but it's the jacket. So, you know, ordinary objects can take on a huge political symbolism. And I think, Jeff, it's interesting, isn't it? If we look at sort of political branding, we often talk about it in the, the gestures we see, what politicians uh, wear, how they conduct themselves. Um but this shows, again, it's it's quite easy to lose control over your political messaging and indeed uh, the opposition's power to see something else and, and to use it against autocratic governments or any governments for that matter. Absolutely. These symbols have, have enormous power. Just think about the red hats um, that people wear to the to the Donald Trump rallies. Donald Trump couldn't have imagined um, that this would be uh, the phenomenon that it is. Some quarters of America, no doubt, and some quarters of, of Europe, the red hat now seems to be something of a hate symbol. Um, <laughs> it looks like the red beret in Uganda has a bit more, more hope uh, built upon it. Um, here's one for you just to end on. What should we seize upon? Uh, you know, the, uh, with the people here, here, there's sort of reasonable voices in the centre any any obvious kind of political just like, a well, brolly would be useful today on more <laughs> that would than be one a very level. good British symbol uh, we've had an example in the last couple of weeks which was the spider brooch so Lady Hale mm. of the Supreme Court who's wearing a big spider as she brooch as she announced her judgment people have made t-shirts with spiders on them people have put spiders everywhere so this, the spider brooch really caught on Terry Stiasny and Geoffrey Howard thank you both in a moment we'll hear how London's Freeze Art Fair is stitching itself into the centre of the Art Fair tapestry you're with Monocle's House View stay tuned this is Monocle's House View. I'm Tom Edwards. Now, it's freeze week here in the big smoke, but with major international art fairs becoming a rather crowded market, how's it keeping itself from getting stitched up? Here's Yolene Goffin with an answer. Much has been written about how the increasing business of the art calendar means the art fair giants like Basel and Fries are giving ground to smaller boutique fairs. 
While it's true that events such as Art Monte Carlo and Art Genève have found their footing with collectors because of their manageable size, the established players have not thrown in the towel, nor stopped setting the agenda. And in London, this week is clearly freeze week. In order to remain relevant, established fairs must constantly evolve, which is often done by means of new sections and themed shows. Freeze has always been skilled at this, often anticipating trends that later sweep through museum and galleries programming. This year, it's debuting a section called Woven, dedicated to textile works of art. Interestingly, to move the discussion away from the assumption that such works are often a feminist statement, Curator Cosmin Costinas from Hong Kong's Parasite has set out to use them as part of a discussion on post-colonialism. And if we do want to talk about size, Freeze will suit you just fine. It's big enough to feel like an international draw and give you bang for your buck if you're a curious visitor, yet small enough to be achievable in one or two afternoons. Those who bemoan its overwhelming nature clearly have never been to a construction material or bathroom fittings fair in a sprawling German messe. And let's not forget the catering. A day of arts and culture is never complete without a tasty bite to eat. See you at the fair. That was Yolene Goffin. And that's all for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Yolene Goffin and Sam Johannes. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 20 hundred hours London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. And this programme, Monocle's House View, returns at the same time tomorrow. That's 1900 in Zurich, 1800 London time. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>